From PRX, the public radio exchange, this is How Sound. I'm Rob Rosenthal, host of How Sound, the backstory to great radio storytelling. Here's something that makes me scratch my head. The 20th century was a recorded century. From cylinders to digital recorders, the last century was captured in sound. I read an estimate somewhere that the Library of Congress alone has over 3 million sound recordings. 3 million. Yet, on the radio today, you rarely hear archive tape. Okay, music recordings might be an exception if you want to think of those recorded songs as archival recordings. But oral histories, news, odd bits and bites of sound, old spoken word albums, you rarely hear them. I love archival tape. Fortunately, producer Joe Richmond likes to get his hands dirty rummaging through archives and pouring through online audio collections. I just love dealing with it and playing with it in the story and, and listening to it. I just, it for me... It, it's like it gives you that kind of trans transporting quality that um, that I look for in radio in general. Joe may be best known for his radio diaries. In fact, that's the name of his company, Radio Diaries. For many years, Joe handed tape decks to people so they could document their lives. He also produces stories where instead of loaning a recorder, he's making all of the recordings, but the final piece still sounds like a diary of sorts. Well, most recently. He's produced documentaries that use a lot of archive tape. Joe says his most ambitious project was Mandela, an audio story, a five-part series that aired on All Things Considered in 2004. He collected nearly 200 hours of archive tape. My favorite archival experience of my life was being in South Africa working on our Mandela series and having just unlimited access to the basement of the SABC, the broadcast, public broadcaster in South Africa, and being able to just go through all these old reel-to-reel recordings and just and just dub right there, you know, and just stumbling on, you know, just strange things like Afrikaans lessons that were broadcast on the radio. Teach yourself Afrikaans. Good evening, listeners. Let us start off by getting to know all the Afrikaans sounds. Lach, dach, and nach. And a very historic recording that we stumbled on of the prosecutor of Mandela's Ravonia trial in the 60s, a recording of his opening statement that no one had ever heard before, which was on a reel-to-reel tape that was literally falling apart every few seconds as I was playing it on the reel-to-reel machine. I had to borrow a razor blade and splicing tape, and I had to fix all these splices just to be able to listen to it. And it was this mislabeled old reel-to-reel tape that no one had really heard before since I think the time it was recorded. Firstly, the state alleges the planned purpose thereof was to bring about chaos, disorder, and turmoil in the battle to be waged against the white man in this country. It's those kind of moments where if you can manage to get yourself into an actual archive, it's just like the possibility for finding things that have not been found before is really exciting. On this house sound, we'll listen to a piece Joe produced about a ridiculously unlikely airplane crash. In 1945, an American B-25 bomber hit the Empire State Building. Joe says he had this story on his to-do list for a really long time, but he never really did anything with it until he heard about a stunning archival recording. There was a guy um, in a building as the plane was going down Fifth Avenue who saw the plane and was happened to be dictating a letter into his old dictation machine and 
you know, even though you, the sound isn't isn't very good, you can't really tell what's happening. There is this kind of documentation of that moment when the plane is going down the valley of office towers, down Fifth Avenue, towards on its way to the Empire State Building. Listen carefully, and you'll hear Jaeger say a letter to Dean Crawford, University of Michigan. Dear Dean Crawford, we are sending under under separate cover, and then the crash. Let's listen to the whole story. The Plane That Flew Into the Empire State Building by Joe Richman. My name is Therese Fortier Willig. In 1945, I was 20 years old and I worked for Catholic Relief Services on the 79th floor of the Empire State Building. My name is Gloria Paul. In 1945, I was working for the USO headquarters. I was on the 56th floor of the Empire State Building. It was just exciting every time I got off the train and went up to that 56th floor, there was excitement. It was the Empire State Building, the tallest building in the world at that time. Rising a quarter of a mile straight up into the clouds, the world's tallest structure, the Empire State Building. From an observation platform, visitors look down on the New York skyline, 1,200 feet below. Everyone on the ground looks so small. The cars, the people. You were really part of the, uh, the clouds. The Empire State Building, a giant of steel and stone, a mark of 20th century progress. I'm Arthur Weingarten. I wrote the book, The Sky is Falling, about the B-25 bomber that crashed into the Empire State Building. The pilot of the plane was Captain William Franklin Smith, a highly decorated pilot. Early in the morning on July 28, 1945, Captain Smith left from Massachusetts to the New York area. That morning was a misty, cloudy day at the Empire State Building. We couldn't really see the ground from the 79th floor. And it was so foggy outside, I was looking out of the window, there was nothing to see. It was just like pea soup. It was like a London fog. It was very foggy in New York this morning when an Army B-25 twin-engine bomber passed over LaGuardia Field and asked for a weather report. The when Captain Smith called into LaGuardia Field and said, I request clearance to land, the tower said, we have almost zero visibility here. I suggest you do not land here at LaGuardia. The pilot was warned that the weather was bad and that the tower of the Empire State Building, a landmark for airmen in this area, could not be seen. Smith said, thank you very much and signed off. He ignored it. After over 50 missions in Europe, flying in the worst weather conditions imaginable, what could possibly happen to him here in the United States? And so he started to make a little bit of a turn which brought him over midtown Manhattan. And as he started to straighten out, the clouds broke up enough for him to realize he was flying among skyscrapers. On a foggy Saturday morning, five blocks north of the Empire State Building, James E. Egger, 
was dictating into his sound scriber machine a letter to Dean Crawford of the University of Michigan. He was interrupted by the sound of a plane roaring down Fifth Avenue at less than a thousand feet. And you can hear him on the tape dictating the letter as the sound of the engines get louder and louder and louder as it passes by his office window. Suddenly his voice stops and a second or so later on the tape you hear a dull thud which is the impact of the bomber into the Empire State Building. About five minutes of 10, I got up from my desk, and that was the end of the office as it existed. We are delaying the start of our regularly scheduled program to bring you a special news report on the crash of an airplane into the Empire State Building. Columbia Station's... I was in the file cabinet, and all of a sudden the building felt like it was going to just topple right over. It just threw me across the room, and I landed against the wall. People were screaming and looking at each other and didn't know what to do. We didn't know whether it was a bomb or, or what happened. A B-25 Mitchell bomber on a flight, apparently a routine flight, from Boston to Newark or New York City, crashed into the 78th or the 79th story of the Empire State Building. And what the final toll will be, there is no way of telling at this time. On the other side of the office, all I could see was flames. Mr. Fountain was walking through the office when the plane hit the building, and he was on fire. His clothes were on fire, his head was on fire. Six of us managed to get into this one office that seemed to be untouched by the fire and closed the door before it engulfed us. There was no doubt that the other people must have been killed. The four-alarm fire has drawn every piece of fire apparatus to the busy scene of Fifth Avenue and 34th Street in the heart of Manhattan, and hundreds of office workers were trapped a fifth of a mile above the street level. It was a very small universe at that point. You're sort of stuck there in an island with fire all around us. A couple of the women had, had passed out from the smoke, and I had a handkerchief in my pocket, and so I used that to cover my nose and mouth to protect me from the fumes. But um, I didn't expect to get out alive. Somebody opened the window, and uh, I'm sitting there, and I thought about my rings, and I figured somebody else might as well have use out of them. So I took them off my fingers and threw them out the window. Uh, we have contacted an eyewitness, Mr. Phil Kirby of the Grand Advertising Agency. We've contacted him by telephone, uh, Mr. Kirby. Uh, I looked out of the window, and uh, it was very, very smoky, terribly smoky. And, and uh, I looked out of the window, and I saw two girls trapped on the 78th floor. That's above our floor. You see, I'm in the 76th. There's two flights up. A man appeared, you know, a few stories down. He looked up and he signaled up to us. And I think Charlotte was sitting, you know, with her legs dangling inside the office and we were holding on to her. It gave her a better view of what was going on. Then one girl got out of the window and I said, get back, get back, get back. I said, the fire will be here soon. Yeah. So she said, well, come quickly because our whole office is in flames. Yeah. Can't wait long. And I yeah. said, all right, you get back now. Be a good girl and get back. 
I guess he was trying to give us a little solace that I know that you're there, don't worry, you know. And that was a, that was a connection with the rest of the world, you know. We all felt a little better to know that someone knew we were there. When the plane hit the outside of the building, it kept on going, and the engines continued about 20 feet into the building and went down through the elevator shaft, what was an elevator shaft. When the plane hit, parts of the engine flew ahead and severed the lifting cables of the elevators that had been at the 79th floor. Sitting in one of the elevators was a young 19-year-old elevator operator named Betty Lou Oliver. She started to plunge down the elevator shaft from the 79th floor. Cables of two of the cars were sheared, sending both elevators crashing to the sub-basements of the Empire State Building. So far as she was alive. Burn, one of the she broke her pelvis and her back and her neck. But she survived. Now, uh, Reverend John J. Morrison has just come in, and he has just given the last rites to a man who jumped and landed on a parapet. I think it's on the 60, I don't know, 65th or 66th floor. It's down below us anyway. Yes, I see. My name is Sharon Deering Sizoskis. My father was Paul Deering. My father was in a corner office on the 79th floor. He either was forced out by the crash and the concussion or or he actually had to jump when he saw the whole place on fire. It's more likely that he had to jump. You know, if you were ever up 79 floors and looking down, to think of someone having to jump out of a window up there, it, that's what I think of. We're speaking from the Empire State Building, near the top of the building, the 79th floor, where firemen are picking up the debris caused by the crash of a Mitchell B-25 bomber into this building right about 40 feet from where we stand. All of a sudden, here were, here were firemen, and they're coming to rescue us, you know, uh, all dressed up in their raincoats and whatever they wear, you know, when they're... It was just just wonderful. We climbed out through the broken glass. I was just grateful to be alive. Uh, the walls are still hot. The brick and stone walls that we have our hand on as we talk uh, are still hot with the flame that has been out for over an hour now. 112 flights later, we got to the bottom floor, but we didn't know what happened until we came out of the building. I see crowds of people all kind of looking at each other. I said, well, what happened? What happened? What happened? And he pointed up to the 79th floor, and I saw the, the tail of a B-25 sticking out. Uh, well, we're going to get off the air here very shortly because we have the story told now. The B-25 two-engine army bomber crashing into the Empire State Building just a few minutes before 10 o'clock. That morning, 11 people died in the offices and three in the plane for a total of 14 people. Well, this is Don Goddard, and uh, this is the National Broadcasting Company. We return you now to the music of the first piano quartet.
Joe Richmond produced that story for National Public Radio in 2008. It's called The Plane That Flew Into the Empire State Building. This is How Sound, the backstory to great radio storytelling. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Joe says there's no substitute for hunting for audio in an actual archive, but the Internet is a close second. The problem is online recordings are sometimes compromised. Because the stuff that you get online or the stuff that you'll get from sources that have already been kind of collected and curated are have been, you know, they've been edited, they've been curated, they've been kind of like picked. And the real problem is when you have archival audio that's been, you know, compressed and processed and gone around the internet a number of times and been copied that way so that it feels like it just has that that echoey, tinny quality of compression. And those are the, you know, then it's stuff that you can't, you can't really fix that. Poking around archives and the internet in search of sound makes sense, right? I mean, where else would you look? Yard sales? Well, Joe did something that never would have occurred to me. One of the things that we did is Samar Freemark, my co-producer on the story, uh, just sent emails to a lot of audio collectors. World War II era is a great period for looking for audio because everyone kind of collected and kept it. And so sometimes going, going right to collectors is a really good source. People will gladly let you listen and broadcast material if you give them some sort of credit and thanks. And so I think a lot of the material we use for this particular story came from individual audio collectors. Some archival material is in the public domain. There are no copyright issues to navigate. You're free to use the recording. In other cases, you have to pay copyright owners for use. But Joe thinks, generally speaking, his work is covered by the Copyright Act's Fair Use Clause. Fair Use basically says, and and keep in mind, I ain't no lawyer, but Fair Use says so long as you are only using a portion of the work, so long as you are not impeding the ability of the copyright holder to make money from their work, and the use is for educational purposes, you're free to excerpt and use content. On the NPR news magazines, we have the advantage of um, sort of, I guess you could say, being covered by fair use. It's at least I consider our our, our documentaries uh, sort of covered under the under fair use laws, which means that we can use a reasonable amount of it. We're not selling them; they're for educational purposes. All these kind of somewhat vague um, criteria that. Um, that sort of let you go under the umbrella of fair use. So we don't worry too much about um, about rights. Before we check out of today's program, I just want to return to one last bit of tape from Joe's Empire State Building story. Did you catch this? Uh, we have contacted an eyewitness, Mr. Phil Kirby of the Grand Advertising Agency. We've contacted him by telephone, and, uh, Mr. Kirby. Uh, I looked out of the window, and uh, it was very, very smoky, terribly smoky. And, and uh, I looked out of the window, and I saw two girls trapped on the 78th floor. That's above our floor. You see, I'm in the 76th. There's two flights up. A man appeared, you know, a few stories down. He looked up, and he signaled up to us. And I think Charlotte was sitting, you know, with her legs dangling inside the office, and we were holding on to her. It gave her a better view of what was going on. Then one girl got out of the window, and I said, get back, get back, get back. I said, the fire will be here soon. Yeah. So she said, well, come quickly, because our whole office is in flames. Yeah. Can't wait long. And I said, all right, you get back now. Be a good girl and get back. I guess he was trying to give us a little solace that I know that you're there. Don't worry, you know. And that was, a, that was a connection with the rest of the world, you know. We all felt a little better to know that someone knew we were there. Doesn't that make you blink? Joe mixes an archival eyewitness account of a woman halfway out a window with interview tape of that woman. 
I mean, what are the odds Joe could find both the news account and the woman referred to in that tape, 60 years later, mind you? Well, that was just getting lucky. We interviewed her um, and got that story before we heard the archival tape. So we had the story of them being trapped and looking out the window, you know, opening the window for air and looking out, trying to see what was going on. And luckily, she talked about seeing a man below saying, get back, get back in the window, that stuff. And we had that story. And then as we're going through all, all the archival tape, we stumbled on the guy looking up. That was just lucky. That's when you think there's a radio god. <laughs> it's all about getting lucky, right? Whether you're interviewing someone or recording scenes or going through archives, it's all about just like looking for stuff that makes you get excited and kind of fall in love with, with moments in the tape and give you the energy to kind of keep going. Radio producer Joe Richmond. There are several really great resources for historical documentaries on the radio. American Radio Works and Talking History both feature stories with lots of archive tape. Then there's the series Lost and Found Sound by the Kitchen Sisters. And of course, PRX. There's lots of documentaries and music programs that feature incredible archival audio there. Links are at the blog howsound.org. This is How Sound, the backstory to great radio storytelling from the Public Radio Exchange. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Thanks for listening. And transom.org.